it is time for Peer Pressure. Today's guest is Bob Burt, the humble and accomplished Bob Burt. A great show talking about uh, his personal history in the art and music world and, uh, of course, the, the rich history that happened here in the New York City area in such a great time for art and music. So stay tuned for that. Thanks to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for handling all the other podcast duties. We are WFMU. And it is my pleasure to introduce Bob Burt. Hello, sir. Are you there? Hello, world. Wow. There you are. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for having me. This is great. Yeah, this is going to be so much fun. We were talking about how, like, coming into the studio, it's like going to somebody's house to just play records, (laughs) which we don't, you know, don't really get to do. Yeah. You know, I can't even begin to start talking about what you do and who you've done it with and, Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. So what are your most exciting memories of of some of the things that you've been involved in? Well, musically, I have to say, I mean, people always say the 80s were a drag musically, but for me, that was the highlight of my career, being that the first five years of the 80s, I was with Sonic Youth, and then um, I went from there to Pussy Galore, and those are the two most known bands I've been in, and the bands I've done the most traveling with, the bands that I'll still listen to <laughs> on occasion and so you do go back into things that you've been on and listen to them oh yeah i'm not one of these people that I, I know so many musicians that are like can't listen to themselves or watch themselves or oh. do anything like that and I, I'm, I'm i don't know maybe it's ego or something but there's things that i have done that i know that even if i wasn't the least bit involved with and lived in another part of the world that i would be a fan of so i'm very fortunate to that that happened that way, yeah. you know. Yeah, and you do, well, and you don't strike me as like a perfectionist, which is, so, I think, part of the personality trait of the people that don't listen to what they had put out. Right, kind right. Of like, oh my god, I played so badly on that. Or, no, you know, I'm, it's, so, it, I'm pretty far from a perfectionist. Yeah, I mean, you're, well, you're a huge music fan, and so that's kind. Of, it's more about the spirit of something. Sure. Yeah. You know, it, it is a drag being old, but I'm very happy about. <laughs> About the period of life, as far as music is concerned. Oh, God, hell yeah. Yeah. Well, what was the first show that you went to? The first show that I went to was um, with my older brother. I went to see the band when their second album, the Brown album, came out at the Felt Forum. Wow. And then then I just started going to shows. I grew up around here. You know, I just started, uh, the second show I saw, I think, was... 10 years after and then mm. uh and just i just started going to see anything i can i went to the Fillmore east a bunch of times and saw shows there and uh and then all through like you know high school i grew up in in, in clifton new jersey and it's right next to passaic and actually my very first date at the age of 16 was to opening night of the capitol theater nice <laughs> and the bill that night was frampton's camel humble pie and the jay giles band. wow <laughs> humble pie wow yeah that was good and what was your recollection of the the show i just remember thinking humble pie was blew Jay Giles off the stage. I thought Peter Wolf talked too much. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was it was fun. But even before that, before the Capitol Theater, I had seen, um, like I, I just mentioned to you before, I saw Alice Cooper's Love at the Death Tour at the Central Theater. 
which was amazing because um, it was like an early show and a late show. I went to the early show and there was hardly anyone there. So they just left, let the doors open and let you stay through to the late show. Plus they let in all these people in off the street. And at that point, whereas I think it still is now, part of Alice's shtick was to uh, take dollar bills off a sword and throw them into the crowd. He does still do that. He does still do that. And he was doing it then on the Love at the Death Tour and... And there was all these, you know, people from the street that came in and he was throwing these dollar bills and there was a, a little riot of like homeless people like beating each other <laughs> up trying to get this money. It was hysterical. You know. <laughs> so they were so he was at, not at the point to get his own fake dollar bills printed <laughs> up. So he was using some real money then. I, I would imagine. I didn't get wow. too close to it, but wow. well you don't want to fight <laughs> off those homeless people at all. That's yeah, them them fighting more. That's awesome. What you a know. great story. You know, like, well, you know, I grew up, you know, when I was like eight years old, that's when, you know, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan and all that thing started happening. So my mm-hmm. earliest memories of music, and that's why I picked the Young Rascals as the first tune, was like sitting in my bathtub as a little kid with the transistor AM radio, just waiting for those few songs that you wanted to hear, like, mm-hmm. you know, Good Lovin' or Psychotic Reaction or Satisfaction, whatever it was at the time, you yeah, know, like, yeah. you know, way through all the schlock, because there was always, you know... With every great band and song, there's a thousand horrible things that they shove down your throat. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and do you remember sort of the going from AM to FM? Yes, I remember the exact day because uh, my father had bought a brand new car and it had an FM radio in it. And I was sitting there and the car was warming up and I was just checking out FM radio. And I came across the DJ, I guess it was uh, NEW at the time. And I heard him say, Oh, that was the Fugs and blah, blah. And I said, Oh, my God. And, you know, you know my father owned uh, some liquor stores and next to his main one there was a record store so as long as I can remember I was going into this record store and you know back in in those days in the early 60s it was basically a handful of albums and then just like the number one through 50 of the top seven inch singles which were like 65 cents a piece or something like that yeah yeah you know back then it's like when an album came out I had all, all my brothers and sisters were older they had a few records so they were always listening to like Dylan and Donovan and stuff like that so I picked up on that stuff and mm-hmm. I was brought up in a pretty you know straight Catholic American Italian family so it was just uh, my father was a, a bit of a athletic star so I just kind of rebelled and, and I just you know when people were arguing about the Beatles and Stones I was like well what about you know the Fugs and the Mothers and the Birds and, mm. <laughs> and did you go do any kind of sporting stuff because no, of I, you I, said rebelling right yeah, I I was never, I was turned off to to, to sports from an early age. I guess because it was such a big thing in my house. Mm-hmm. Was it something that was sort of I don't want to say pushed on you, but was it sort of like oh you should do this or no, not at all, oh, not cool. at all. My my parents were, were very cool in that respect. Yeah, didn't really care. I was like I saw I was like so much younger. My my mom's gonna turn ninety in a couple of weeks. Oh wow. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> That's very, very cool. Yeah. So what music would you say that, that you might not have gotten into if it were not for having older brothers and sisters? Well, my brother was heavily into, heavily into Bob Dylan, so I mm. picked up on that on an early age, and, and I'm still a big Bob Dylan fan to this day. One day he came home with two brand new albums, and it was uh, Cheap Thrills by the Big Brother and the Holding Company and uh, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? Mm. And, you know, so, you know, got into that, like always on it. And back in those days, you would just wait till something was on 
Ed Sullivan, and then there was Shindig and Hullabaloo, <laughs> and, and you know, you, you, you catch on to all this stuff. I, you know, got into the kinks really early on. I'm still into them today. That was about it. You know, I was like 14 in like 1969, so I saw everything that was going on. I, I just, like most, most young kids growing up who maybe couldn't wait to play football or something, I couldn't wait to, you know, try LSD, and I couldn't wait to, yeah. like, do all these other crazy things mm-hmm. I, I looked up to people like you know abby hoffman <laughs> right you know so i was totally into that. i was way into the jefferson airplane i went to this junior high school used to walk home from school with my best friend who lived down the street from me and there was this record store ironically n- named take five so we would walk down the hill and while i was distracting the guy my friend would be sticking all the latest <laughs> albums up his jacket and then we'd go to his house and like Oh, what's this new band, Black Sabbath, and you uh, know, uh, wow. MC5, and all this stuff, and wow. you know, we, so we were, we, we were doing that, and so, so were you the kid in high school, sort of like influencing others and sort of turning people onto music? <laughs> no, when I was in high school, it was an interesting period because as I went into high school, you know, I, I was taking all art classes and. And when I was in high school, it was the early 70s. And when I first got into high school, the big album that me and my friends were all into, a lot of my friends were deadheads. And I could actually even say that, you know, I saw the Grateful Dead with Pigpen and I saw the Allman Brothers with Dwayne Allman and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like right around in 72 is when Ziggy Stardust came out and and the whole glam thing started happening. And, you know, all of a sudden it was cool to be gay or whatever. And I just remember one day a friend of mine, a gay friend of mine, Billy, was walking down the hall with his big green platform shoes on. He was singing Walk on the Wild Side. And then on a high school field trip art school field trip we went to see the andy warhol retrospect at the whitney museum and right around then me and my friends cut school one day we went to see andy warhol's trash and it was around that time that uh, me and my girlfriend went to max's and saw the new york dolls so right around then my whole perspective kind of changed well you were starting to actually get involved instead of just looking at it then my taste was changing from from hippie to glam or or whatever and in the early 70s uh one of my friends you know he was one a good friend of mine he was the first person i knew that had an apartment so he we used to go there and hang out and he was turning me on to all this stuff like you know william burroughs and all these jazz musicians and we used to go see like sun ra and ross on roland kirk and all these like jazz shows even in like lofts and stuff like that mm. so um so yeah so it, it kind of went from there to uh one day in 1975 i think it was he said uh there's this place called cbgb's there's this uh, chick called patty smith let's go check it out and you know, we went there. It was like a weeknight. It was television and Patti Smith, and there was like 10 people there. And I just fell in love with this world. Because I was such a Andy Warhol fanatic, I started going to SVA, and I learned how to silkscreen print. And I actually got started working as a professional fine art silkscreen printer. When I, you know, when I started seeing all these bands on TV as a kid, you know, I started getting a little bit curious about the drums and a neighbor, you know, that I... I knew his older brother had a was a drummer and he had all these, you know, drum catalogs with, you know, Gretsch and Ludwig and all these sets that I used to look at. And I'm like, so I took drum lessons for a year when I was 12. And then, you know, I had a, a really crappy kit in the basement. And I used to drive my family nuts with. Once I moved out of my house when I was like 18, I, I just never even thought of be, I was trying to be an artist. I never even thought about trying to be a musician. 
<laughs> what was your first sort of like band experience then? Well, when I was a youngster, I had a few like kids come over and we'd like be in the basement trying to play like Dirty Water or whatever Cream songs were around at the time. Mm-hmm. But um, why don't we play a couple of songs? I feel like I'm okay. going through my whole life here. Okay. Let's, let's start off with uh, <laughs> <No> a little... <problem. laughs> Some young rascals. So my um, my guest is Bob Burt, <laughs> and uh, he is the guest DJ today if I let him DJ, so I should probably do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his first track, what do you want to say about this Young Rascals Skulls track? Well, the reason I picked this one, I mean, here we are going through my life, and it was really difficult to like pick songs from certain periods because there's always so much. But like I said before, my earliest memory was sitting in that bathtub waiting for uh, Good Lovin' to come on, and even though I didn't want to play that one because it's the obvious hit. I wanted to play some Rascals because uh, they're a local band. I think they were from New Jersey. I just really dig their sound and their cute little outfits. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. There you go. All right, then. We're going to hear some Young Rascals. Please stay tuned. And a little bit of Mott the Hoople there, programmed by Bob Burt. From their very first album. Yes. First song on side two. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, why did you choose that song? Because uh, I had this record from when it came out and always loved it. And most people, when they think of Mott, they just think of uh, the glam period of the 70s, all the young dudes and all that kind of thing. You know, Ian Hunter played in Hoboken not too long ago at the... Um, arts festival and it was amazing uh james mastro who has the guitar bar in hoboken is his guitarist and i'm just a big fan always have been mm-hmm. you know awesome and it, it, it just kind of brings me back to that period of my life when uh i mean it was tough making making these choices <laughs> <laughs> except for the next one. Oh, 
right. <laughs> well, let's. And you did mention that you saw Alice Cooper in Passaic. Yes. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> absolutely an incredible. And I, you know. Unfortunately, I, I was too young and I missed the Dave Clark Five when they were in Passaic. Oh but. wow! <laughs> wow. Yeah, I mean, New Jersey's always gotten its its good share of gigs, and you're somebody who is always out. You know, I mean, I yeah, I not it. so much anymore, <laughs> unless it's Maxwell's. Right. Well, <laughs> a local thing, but but you you're always you know seen you for years, like going to shows, really supporting the scene. Oh yeah. You know that kind of thing. So I'm I'm not surprised that. Yeah, I'm, I'm more than anything, I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that <laughs> that absolutely comes through, and the, you know, and, and it's great that you played something off the Mata Hoople stuff because they're, I mean, their later period almost didn't exist. I mean, they were ready to break up, exactly. You know, and they were, I guess, much more of a live band, but they weren't selling records, right, right, you know? exactly. And uh, and so I guess that's when Bowie gave them all the young dudes, right? Like when the, during this period, during their first, I guess, maybe four or five albums before that stuff, they were like, you know, when they played the Fillmore, they were on the bottom of the bill. No one cared about them. And mm. Did you see them there? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is there anybody that you I did see them I did see them uh you know, after all the young dudes in Mott. I saw them at uh at Radio City Music Hall and then the same week it's so funny because I saw them at Radio City Music Hall and it was this big production and then like three days later I drove down to Asbury Park and saw them in this like corner bar. Oh wow. <laughs> it was it was bizarre. And then like many years later in the nineties I was doing a uh, peel session in London with this band I was playing with at the time called the Action Swingers. And Buffin, the drummer of from Mata Hoople, was the uh, was the sound engineer for that session. And oh wow! At the time, he was just kind of like a, a miserable drunk and wanted to get out of there. <laughs> and then he was just kind of being cold. And finally, I said to him, "You know, I saw you at Radio City." And all of a sudden, his face lit up, and he was like, "Man, it was so hard to climb up on that gigantic riser. I almost fell off." And ah. and all of a sudden, he was real friendly, and he was you know talking yeah. to me about drums and stuff. He was oh, really that's cool. cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Is there any band that you never saw that you really that you like some band that was was on the wish list that just never happened? Yeah, I, of course, um, the Velvet Underground. I got turned on to them very early because I came across uh, uh, the first album at my older brother's uh, hippie apartment and <laughs> and, I, and I was totally intrigued and when I listened to it I was like oh my god what is it and I had to have it because you know I was already an Andy Warhol fanatic and then when you know when I was in high school and back then the drinking age was only 18 and I saw that the Velvets were playing at Max's and I think it was even it was it was like probably later it was probably Doug Yule period and I really really wanted to go and I said well I'm not old enough I won't get in I won't get in so I didn't go so then a couple of weeks later a bunch of my friends said oh we're gonna go to Max's to see something I forget what it was I think it was Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks we all had fake IDs, and, and then we go there, and of course, no one asked for ID. And I thought, oh man, I could have saw the Velvet Underground. Oh, right. Well, you so I regret sure. that. I regret not seeing the birthday party at Danceteria. Oh, I saw them. <laughs> yeah. I saw them at uh, Peppermint Lounge. Okay. I think, yeah. That was one of the scariest shows <laughs> I've ever been to. Like, had no idea that they were, I mean, I knew their records, but. It was just this really frightening, you know, it was kind of like the the ghouls all come together for Halloween. And yeah. Tracy Pugh, like, I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, whoa. Was, that, that was a really frightening. So those are my two big regrets. But mm -hmm. there's so many things. I mean, I'm glad I got to see the New York Dolls when they were first around a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything else, I think I pretty much seen. I don't have any other big regrets. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Very cool. So do you want to um, 
Uh, now let's let's uh, move up in time a little bit. Yeah. Enter the seventies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, do you want to intro this next track? Yeah. Since we were just uh, speaking about the Dolls, uh, I was fortunate enough to see them about five or six times. Jerry Nolan, one of my favorite drummers, and I was so I was a big fan, and I was lucky enough to uh, when they made the move from the New York Dolls into the Heartbreakers. I was at all their early shows when they when Richard Hell was still in the band. So right now we're going to hear. Uh, Mystery Girls from the New York Dolls' second album, Too Much Too Soon, and we're going to go right into A Little Richard Hell. You gotta lose. All right, then. Stay tuned. My special guest is Bob Burt. He is DJing for the afternoon, and here's some New York Dolls. Stay tuned. To recap, that's the Dead Boys with uh, What Love Is off of their first record. And uh, Bob, what do you want to... I know you want to say something about the Dead Boys. Yes, I do. Um, well, uh, let's go back to that period. You know, I, I mentioned before how I discovered uh, CBGBs in 75. And I just started... I was like an addict. I was going there like four nights a week. And it wasn't like I was any hipster part of the scene. I was just this goofy kid staring at this other world wishing I was a part of it and even at this point I had no aspirations these people were all like amazing musicians and I would never even think of even trying to to, you know be a part of it in fact one show that I want to mention that what a cool period this was in New York for example was like you know I was into all these bands I've seen them all like a million times before any of them had records out and there was one night in particular that I want to mention where I saw this little ad in the Village Voice that said uh, Rock and Rimbaud, and it just had a picture of the uh, French poet Arthur Rimbaud and an address, and it was like $3 or something like that. So we just went and checked it out, and I ended up seeing the Patti Smith group play in someone's living room where you actually had to remove your shoes, and they were 
pretty much like towering and dripping sweat over you while you were sitting there. And it was just, I don't know. Wow. Things like that just don't happen anymore. They certainly <laughs> don't. Wow. And as far as going to, going to all these shows, I remember one where it was the first time that the Damned came over to play. And the Dead Boys were opening up for them at CBGB's. And I went to the show. And I had seen the Dead Boys a few times before, I think. The Dead Boys, you know, completely blew the Damned off the stage. And the funny part about it was while the Damned were playing, all five of the Dead Boys were front and center at the stage just laughing at them, flicking cigarettes and throwing ice cubes at the damn while they were playing. <laughs> and I mentioned that to, uh, I met Cheetah back in April because I was fortunate enough to share a stage with him and um, Bob Pfeiffer from the Human Switchboard, whose really great album, uh, Who's Landing in My Hangar, was just re-released. Yeah, it was. And uh, I was listening to it on the way over here and everyone should go out and buy that. And Do uh, as Bob says. <laughs> and uh, also, in, in, I got to so play it on their book tour, which I highly recommending reading Bob's book, Cheetah's book, and Mike Hudson from the Pagans book. All f excellent literary experiences. And uh, anyway, I got to play at their book party over at the Bowery Electric in New York. And so I was on stage with Bob Pfeiffer from the Human Switchboard, Cynthia Slay from the Bush Tetras, who we'll be hearing shortly, one, another one of my favorite post-punk bands, Don Fleming from Ball and Gumball and... Uh, worldwide producer. Also, uh, the bass player was this guy named Sal Maida, who was in this band called Milk and Cookies back in the day, and he's also played with Roxy Music in 1973 and Sparks at some point. Huh. And it was just, and I, and I also got to play on uh, backup um, Mike Hudson on his uh, Pagans hit. What's this uh, mm. S word called love? It was just a thrilling night. It was a thrill to meet Cheetah. That was uh, with the band called the Tabby Chinos, which is Bob and Cynthia's project. And that was awesome. So that's where I went with that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, the Tabby Chinos are, are really great. Yeah. yeah, they're really great. And I'm not sure. Um, I think that stuff should be released at some point, but I'm not sure when and by who. So moving along after that period in the late 70s, I was still silkscreen printing full-time in fact i actually ended up working for andy warhol and printing all of his artwork downtown wow how did that i mean d did that hit you really hard like was that was that like oh my god i work for andy warhol like the, well you know, it, it wasn't like it, i was, I was working i was working for his right hand man right. I, sp I spoke to andy on the phone a few times but i never he wasn't really there mm -hmm. but we did all his artwork wow so whenever i see anything like those self-portraits with the camouflage or anything like from the late 70s on that I had a hand in making. It was great. It, it was one of the best jobs I ever had, apart from breathing in, you know, deadly fumes all the time from the, <laughs> from the ink. One night in particular, I was working the night shift by myself and my boss, who's Rupert Smith, who's uh, who passed away a long time ago. But uh, he, he just said, oh, someone's going to ring the bell. Why don't you just, I just want you to show him around the, the shop a little bit. Okay. So I'm working away. The doorbell rings and it's uh, Debbie Harry and Stephen Sprouse. Wow. So that was, that was a big thrill. And that was one of the best jobs I ever had. And I've had so many crappy jobs. It's unbelievable. So at one point I was, wasn't working there, but I was working somewhere. I was working at another silkscreen place in Soho on Grand Street. And a friend of mine that worked there came in, you know, this was pretty much all the bands from the CB's Maxes kind of like signed big labels and moved on. And all of a sudden there was like 9,000 bands and there was more clubs and things were going in a different direction a little bit. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't as good as it was earlier on. And then one day a friend of mine handed me this uh, No New York, No Wave compilation. And, and it, it was just everything I loved. It was art. 
and music together. It was proving that you could have a great concept and create something amazing without having extreme music technical abilities. So I just fell in love with that album, and from then on, I just started going to see all the contortions shows and whoever was around. I fell in love with Lydia Lunch, and I was such a huge fan, and still am. So we're going to move up to that period now, and here's a, uh, the first track off No New York Record before by we, The Contortions. Before we go to that record, can I just ask you a question about sure. working at the, I guess, was it, was it considered the Atelier of Warhol? Kind of is that? It was kind of. I might be using the word incorrectly, but I'm not even sure what the. <laughs> okay. Well, well. So my question was. It wasn't. Was the, it wasn't the actual factory, mm -hmm. but it was where all his work was printed. So when did he sign it? Like, was it? He came in when the editions were done. Uh huh. We would like. Let's say we were doing a print edition of. Uh, we did a series when I was there called Cowboys and Indians. First, we would uh, print like about. 50 you like just experimenting around with all kinds of bright colors and they were they were called the artist proofs and then he would pick one that we would run a, a, an edition off of and then we would print the whole edition and then he would come in at the end and, and sign them or else they would maybe be brought to the factory and, and he would sign them and then d did you pre-number them so the numbers so the so the editions were in order or did i had he nothing to do with the them? numbering or, or signing oh, okay. i just i was i was a printer so i, I just basically printed them and then when they were done Got you know, it. And I, it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just me. There was other people there too. But right. yeah, that's what it was. Well, it was just wonder. It's like when did, you know when do they sign them? And, and with different artists, like with Dolly, people said that that he used to just sign stacks of paper, and then they would run the prints, you right? Know, kind right. of thing. And you can and some of them you can tell because his name is so far off of yeah. like the edge of the print and that kind of thing. So yeah, though these were all signed at the end, and mm -hmm. I think you know there's some things he signed on the back. I guess. Oh, cool. You know, so very neat, mm -hmm. awesome little bit of trivia there. So <laughs> now. We are going to go to the Contortions track. It's off of the No New York compilation, and my guest DJ is Bob Burt, and we'll be back in a little bit.
I'd like to remind everybody that we are WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, WFMU.org, and my guest is Bob Burt, and he's programming the show, and we just heard the Bush Tetras. That's right. And that is a great record. And, and, you know, I need to mention, too, that Bob brought in his own records. I had to do, like, no work, like, (laughs) at all, so thank you. And uh, you brought in the 45. It was a great demonstration, like that last set, the Bush Tetras and Lizzie Mercier de Clue and the contortions of that period of time. That was kind of more of the, uh, the funkier aspect coming out of uh, the late 70s, no wave kind of melding into the uh, early 80s. And, um, you know, the contortions, I, I saw them a bunch of time back in the day, and they were, they were absolutely amazing. I mean, first of all, you have someone playing a saxophone, 
slapping the audience around looking sharp. Pat Place, <laughs> who mangles, is like one of my favorite guitar players. She has a style all her own, and the sounds that she gets out of her crazy slide action just makes me melt. So, you know, she was in the contortions, and then she went on to be in the Bush Tetras. And Lizzie Mercier de Clou is a French girl who came to New York. It was, she was Richard Hell's girlfriend for a while, and she a real breath of fresh air to the New York music scene while she was here. She totally was a perfect example of that period of time where there were other bands like Eight-Eyed Spy with Lydia Lunch playing around, which came out of, you know, she was in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, which was a very abrasive no-wave band. It was also on that No New York comp. So, yeah, that's the, that's where we're going through now. We're going to move into uh, a little birthday party. I actually got an email this morning saying, you know, when I when I was mentioning some things I was going to play and some, some girl wrote on the, my thread, like, what no stooges and i i do feel bad because the stooges are my favorite band of all time but so we're going to do a kind of a rare track it's the birthday party doing the stooges loose which was uh on their peel sessions record check it out and after that's over with we're going to start talking about how i merged from being a fan to actually playing music and some bands you may have heard of so we're, we're going to get into how that all happened Excellent. So up right next is the birthday party. Please stay tuned. And we are back. Hello, Bob. Hello, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's not much to say after hearing that, <laughs> is there? No. And so, okay, I'm going to move a little ahead here. The year is 1978, I believe it is. I'm looking at the Village Voice, and I see this little ad in the back that says, uh, Punk Rock Artists Wanted. So... Hmm. I went to this art gallery on Wooster Street in Soho, and I was just working a few blocks away on Grand, and uh, there was this gallery there called the Nansan Gallery. So I brought some of my work to show the curator there, George Staples, and he really dug this lithograph that I had made at the School of Visual Arts, which was a drawing combination photo image of Holly Woodlawn, the uh, Andy Warhol superstar drag queen so he accepted me into the show and it was a big big it was my first little tiny brush with anything and uh so i was part of this group show that also included joey ramone who had a, a piece called bloody gums which was a toothbrush with red paint on it and stuck on the ceiling <laughs> and uh and a whole bunch of other characters there was this character uh named henry banger ben venuti who was a really good artist and uh, still is and and so anyway i got into this show which was really cool the, the art the opening was great and also uh that's where i met my future wife uh, artist linda wolf who i'm still with today hey babe if you're listening that was that was really a big deal. We so I got became part of this gallery. The opening was amazing. I remember, you know, people like Lenny Kay and Cheetah Chrome, all these people were there. Someone 
rode a motorcycle right into the opening. <laughs> and that was uh, that was pretty wild. So yeah, after that I became part of the gallery and I became I had was in this other group show with Linda who I I began dating. Actually our it's easy to to keep track of because our very first night we were together was uh January 1st, 1980. <laughs> oh, happy new year. <laughs> so anyway, we started dating and I lived on the uh at that point I was living on the upper west side of Manhattan and she lived in Jersey City and so we were hanging out and going to all the latest clubs and like hurrahs and whatever was going on at the time. So we decided we wanted to live together and she didn't want to live in Manhattan. I didn't want to live in Jersey City. So she talked me into compromising and we moved to Hoboken, New Jersey, where we still are today. And I think it was, uh, I guess it was like 1980 later on, or no, probably 1981. We went to this club that's not there anymore called the Beaten Path Cafe on Washington Street. And uh, we went to see a couple of friends bands playing and one of the bands didn't show up and also i want to mention that when we first moved to hoboken there was this uh, nutty punk rock guy living right next door was the first person we met whose name was peter missing oh. <laughs> oh, all right so anyway, we were at the Beaten Path Cafe, and the band didn't show up, and we were a little drunk, and someone said, hey, can anyone play the drums? And Linda said, oh, Bob can play the drums, which I'm like, I hadn't touched them in years. So me, Peter, and this guy named, who's calling himself Jeff Holiday, mm -hmm. took over the stage, and he, Peter started reciting his poetry, and we just started making noise, and, and people dug it. And there was this guy there who lived above Maxwell's, who, uh, his name was Pat Clark. Clark, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's one of the first people that I knew of that died of AIDS yeah. back in the few years after. But anyway, he was um he was there and he got us a bunch of shows and, and all of a sudden you know I was in this band and <laughs> it was it was crazy. And one day we're in my apartment and we're trying to figure out a name and Jeff, who was a drunk, said, <laughs> "Let's call it drunk driving." And his his uh his reasoning was, "Hey, whenever they mention drunk driving on television, it'll be like free publicity for the band." Was, okay, whatever. I played with them for a while, and I I was our skills were very limited, and but. I, all of a sudden, I you know people were coming up to me. I'm like, boy, this uh, playing music thing, you get a lot more attention than sitting in a room drawing, you know. <laughs> and I, I don't know, I was kind of digging it. So uh, I was doing that for months. And part of uh, drunk driving shtick was bring a bunch of confetti and garbage and throw it all around the places when we played. Do you remember this time? I, I completely remember <laughs> it. Yeah, I do. And yeah. So Getting... one time we were playing a Wonka Tonka Monday at Tramps over in oh, New York. God. <laughs> I used to do the flyers for those. <laughs> Pat used to, to ask me to do the, all. I did all the flyers, all the handbills for those yeah. shows. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad you remember the name because I was trying to remember what they were called. <laughs> I was like, oh, what were those Mondays called? Wonka yeah. Tonka Mondays. Wow. And it wasn't, it wasn't the Tramps that was around later on. It was this small little bar. Yeah, it was like around the corner from Irving Plaza. Yeah, it was yep. kind of yeah, near, near Irving Plaza, mm -hmm. near Maxis. It started getting out of hand and, you know, Peter kept getting a little nuttier and nuttier and and then one time I was playing with them and, and all this stuff was throwing around. I was playing the drums. I got smacked in the head with like a hardcover book. And I'm like, okay, that's it. <laughs> so well, I, the audience I, will throw things back. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't deal with that. So I left. It was around this time. I remember I was, you know, I wasn't doing anything. I was really depressed. I had a ticket to go see uh, Public Image over at Roseland. <laughs> Mm -hmm. which was the first time I ever even heard of Roseland. It was like the Flowers of Romance period or something. And, and I was all set to go, and I had a flu, blah, 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 and I couldn't go. And 
I was all bummed out. And then, you know, I started feeling better. So a few days later, I was walking around and I went into that record store that used to be on Prince Street in Soho called Rocks, Rocks in Your in Head. Head. Yeah. And I saw a flyer there that said, Sonic Youth need a drummer. And I was already aware of Sonic Youth because, uh, you know, I should mention that around this period was when this really amazing record store, McDougal 99 Records, was there, mm -hmm. yeah. run by Ed Ballman, who also had a label who put out the Bush Tetra's first single, and he put out ESG, all oh, this stuff, Glenn Branca, yeah. all this stuff. And mm -hmm. so I was kind of familiar with Glenn Branca and... One day I was reading the New York Rocker because I was always, that's another thing I, sh I should mention, Rock Scene and New York Rocker, all these publications that were around back then, I was, you know, really into. So I, I knew of Sonic, you know, so I saw this picture of Sonic Youth and I said, oh, the first release on Glenn Branca's record label Neutral is going to be this band Sonic Youth. So uh, I had seen their record in Rocks in Your Head a few months earlier and I picked it up and I, and I really dug it and I went to see them play a couple times, once at the Mud Club and once at CBGB's on a double bill with the Swans and uh, and Richard Etson was their drummer who uh, you know later became he, he left Sonic Youth after being in it for after recording that record to be in the band Conk and then as we know he became a, a pretty famous actor starring in Jim Jarmusch's second film uh, mm -hmm. Stranger Than Paradise so yeah I called the number and uh, I auditioned for them and I, and I got this gig I played my first gig with them in, uh, in 1982 at CBGB's. Ardo Lindsay and Lydia Lunch were there and I was just like, oh my god, I finally I could have, you know, I could have croaked then I would have been happy. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so things went on from there. Went on their first few tours and then they fired me for a while and replaced me with Jim Sclavunos, who's now in Grinder Man yeah. and the Bad Seeds, who we were talking about before, a really great guy, an amazing drummer. He, I had seen him play in Eight Eyed Spy, and he was in Teenage Jesus, and he was in The Cramps, and so it didn't work out with him. And that was when they were, you know, when I was with the, with Join Sonic Youth, we wrote all the material together for uh, the Confusionist Sect, their first record, and and then Jim ended up coming in and playing on it. I got on a couple songs, but then I rejoined and went to Europe with them a couple times. The first time, we, they were one of the first bands, you know, indie rock kind of bands to really pave the way for bands touring Europe. We went over there in 1982 with 13 guitars and Eurel passes. We didn't even have oh. a van. Wow, really? <laughs> oh my God. It was nuts. That's crazy. I remember the first time I went there, they were already over there touring. Uh, uh, Lee and Thurston were already over there touring with Glenn Branca, and they were setting up the Sonic Youth Tour. So I flew over there by myself, and I had a, like, you know, it was like a 24-hour trip on my birthday, oh. flying, you know, 12 hours to here, and then waiting for a train for six hours to take an eight-hour train ride. And all of a sudden, like, I'm right off the train, and five minutes later, um, on stage in Switzerland using this crazy drum kit of the opening band that had like 900 fiberglass drums around me. And, wow. and you know, we, we rocked. And as soon as we got done playing, there was a riot and fires being built in the crowd. Wow. And it was, and it was just oh nuts. So, so it was quite a trip for those years, you know, playing with them. And that was your first European gig? Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that kind of sets the stage. I mean, <laughs> where do you go after that? <laughs> yeah. You know, it was crazy because no one knew who we were. And any or anything, but just the fact that it was like underground rock from New York City, all these mm -hmm. crazy people came out, and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's so funny because all through the years I've been to Europe a bunch of times with different bands, and over there the places stay the same. You know, it's just like yeah. you're playing mostly like government centers and 
the clubs are just there forever. It's just like I'm sure if I went on a tour there right now, I'd probably be playing the same places I played in 1982. You know, right? That's probably <laughs> true. Yeah. They, it seems you know, and I don't really know why our places disappear so much, but it could just be that. I mean, it, it's always seemed to me that that Europeans value the music, the live music experience, much more. You know, and that they treat the bands better and that they really value having their venues and that people really do go out. Yeah. You know, so I did that through 1985. My last gigs with them were uh, actually touring England, opening for Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds' very first tour. Wow. And that was great because they had Roland Howard playing guitar with them and they were still doing some birthday party songs. So that was, that was uh, you know, quite a ride. And so let's... Uh, Let's hear this track that I recorded with them in, I think, 1983 at Wharton Tears Studio called Kill Your Idols. It was recorded live to two-track. All righty. Stay tuned. My guest is Bob Burt. Kill Your Idols by Sonic Youth, obviously. Ah. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So when I when I first went over to Europe uh, with Sonic Youth, we were at someone's house, and uh, they showed us this uh, videotape of this band from Berlin called Einsternste Neubauten. Mm. And I was blown away because, you know, nothing floats a drummer's boat more than people banging on kinds of crazy things right you know we we went to berlin and they were at the show and they actually you know as anti-guitars as they were they actually were really into sonic youth and and we went and visited them into in their uh in the recording studio while they were recording the uh haber haber mesh record i don't know it's just a band that i always really loved i'm not going to get to play them today but you know they were they were real real big influence and i'm still a big fan in 1985, after that Bad Seeds tour, did I mention that on the air or just to Diane? I don't know. Anyway, uh, when I when I left Sonic Youth in the uh, end of 1985, and this is you know after doing a lot of amazing things with them and playing on the uh, the Bad Moon Rising album, which was just reissued on vinyl not too long ago, you know, doing all these things and playing out in the desert with Red Cross and the Meat Puppets, that was that was a amazing experience it's the first time i was turned on to, to red cross or another one of my favorite bands oh wow and you know steve mcdonald at the time was like 16 and they played this amazing show and i was just you know because the, well the one thing that um thurston and i differed on were i was never really into and i'm sorry to disappoint i am but i was never a big heavy metal fan <laughs> <laughs> and i was also never into like the hardcore punk that started happening in in the 80s Hmm. There were things I liked, you know, I appreciate Minor Threat and the first Black Flag records and, and things like that. But I wasn't one of these, you know, head shaving. To me, it, it reminded <laughs> me it reminded me too much of like football or something. And I was just not into it. But anyway, I was more into arty music or fun rock and roll. After I left Sonic Youth, I took a year off 
And Thurston was doing this interview uh, for the Melody Maker or something, and he he just made up this story that I had a band called Bewitched with uh, Suzanne Sasek from who was like their T-shirt salesperson at the time, but ended up being their lighting director and went on to be like the lighting director of every from to Nirvana to Tom Waits to absolutely everybody. She just got off tour with uh, Arcade Fire. Wow. And now she's you know, married to a good friend of mine, Smokey Hormel, who's a you know ace guitar player living in Hoboken with Suzanne. And then, anyway, so uh, I went and, and made this Bewitched EP, which is kind of like my side project experimental thing. At the time, I was influenced a lot by uh, Noy Bouton and the Buttle Surfers, and uh, I was really into that big stick single drag racing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so, so that's what that was the start of Bewitched, and I recorded this uh, 12-inch that um, that Blast First was supposed to put out, but they backed out, and I ended up putting it out myself. And it was around this time, actually. I one night uh, I went to the Cat Club, which used to be on 13th Street, and I went to see Einstein Stay Neubauten, and I was standing there with Kim and Thurston, who sadly recently uh, announced their split up, but uh, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> We're going to respect their privacy. Yes. Anyway, I was at this Neubauten show, and I just uh, mentioned to them, I was hanging out with them, and I mentioned to them, yeah, I'm kind of getting niching to play. Do you know anybody that's looking for it? And she goes, well, this band... Pussy Galore just moved to town, and they might need a drummer. And they were standing right across the room, and so I go over and, and meet them. And they're the, you know, they were like 19, 20 year old college dropout kids with their brand new uh, trash and vaudeville leather jackets and their black dyed hair. And I was like, oh, whatever, you know. So, so the next day I went to uh, Pierre Platter's in Hoboken, the cool record store that was in Hoboken at the time. I'm not sure if I was working there yet or not. But anyway, I went in there and bought the first Pussy Galore single, Feel Good About Your Body. And I listened to it and I thought, oh man, this is really cool. I like this. It was like the perfect combination of Einstein State Neubauten meets 60s garage rock. And it was like my two favorite things mm. combined into one. A few nights later, I went to CBGB's and John Spencer walked over to me and handed me a copy of their latest EP, which was called Groovy Hate F Word. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the self editing. <laughs> <laughs> And I just said to him, hey, are you guys looking for a drummer? So uh, so he wrote his phone number on there, and I called him up and hooked up with these kids. At first, when I first started rehearsing with them, I was playing a regular kit, and there was someone else banging on metal. And then John said, let's like build this combination drum kit. One of the first things we did, because uh, when I was in Sonic Youth, they were mouthing off to the press that they were going to record a version of the Beatles' White Album, mm. so, which they, you know, which I actually started rehearsing, and we got through like the back in the USSR and then just kind of gave up on it. <laughs> yeah, it, it. That's a big job. Yeah, exactly. So when I first joined up with Pussy Galore, John came up to me and he said, well, you know, in response to that, we're going to do a version of Exile on Main Street. And I was like, great. Yeah. I, I like that record better anyway <laughs> and uh so we went and we we whipped out this uh we recorded it in a few days you know on a like a beat up multi-track cassette player and we they ran off a limited uh, edition of 500 cassettes brought it up to caroline for distributing and we got a record deal out of that and we got a lot of attention from this thing that was kind of like the beginning of, of hooking up with them and then uh you know we've made a few more records and Actually, the first album that I made with him called Right Now is Right As We Speak. John Spencer is in Brooklyn mastering it for its uh, vinyl re-release. So I'm oh, wow. very happy about that. So right now we're going to hear a little track from one of the favorite bands that I've been in called Pussy Galore. And this is a cover of a Devo song Yay. called Penetration in the Centerfold with right. the wonderful Julie Kafritz on vocals. Awesome. So folks, please stay tuned. And my guest is Bob Burke.
and uh, we'll be back in a minute.
Yeah. Programmed by Bob Burt. That's the Laughing Hyenas. Let's talk about them. Yeah. They were such a killer band. I think that's... I, I kind of picked them to uh, to summarize the early 90s for me. And I'm not even sure. Were they late 80s? <laughs> can't even remember when I first came across the Laughing Hyenas. But I just... You know, I never missed a show of theirs whenever they came to town. Well, this is off of Hard Times, which is 95. Yeah, this was their very last album. Mm-hmm. And, uh... Yeah, what a, they talk about a scary band. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Larissa was such an amazing guitar player and what a great stage presence. And unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago. Yeah. that's That was my choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my 90s choice. <laughs> We're kind of in a slump, so I figured it was a good... <laughs> <laughs> what well, they're a, a super band and a, and a great choice so we've only got one song left we have one track left and you folks are very lucky because this is the first time you'll ever be hearing this this is from the forthcoming chrome cranks record which was a band that i was in for the second half of the 90s or something or maybe the middle of the 90s for like six or seven years and then we split up and we reunited like two years ago and did some local shows and went over to uh france for a festival show and then last year we recorded this and i believe this to be by far the best chrome cranks album ever and was finally done right syrup records out of uh on CD out of uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, home of Sweet Sweet Connie. And it's a really great <laughs> label. <laughs> Sweet Sweet Connie. Oh, that's awesome. And it's a great, great label that uh, also puts out records by Jad Fair and Don Fleming and other friends of mine. And you should definitely check it out. That's Thick Syrup Records. It's also going to be coming out on vinyl out of Spain on Bang Records. Chrome Cranks came back badder than ever, and this song is called Black Garage Door. And as far as I was told, it's a cover version of a, a band from Cincinnati called the Libertines, not to be confused with the Libertines uh, from Britain with that uh, guy who was a drug addict that went out with Kate Moss. <laughs> Pete, Pete something or other, Darty. And uh, lately I've been playing bongos for uh, Mike Edison, who has a brand new book out called Dirty, Dirty, Dirty on Soft Skull Publishing, which you should also check out. When uh, are you going to write your book? Uh, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I almost forgot. That's what I'm starting to work on now. I, want, um, I plan on writing and putting together mostly photographs because uh, the one thing that I was smart on was bringing a camera on all these journeys. Oh, great. So I have a lot of amazing photographs. And also, I should mention that, in fact, I brought one for you. During, um, from, I think it was 1994 on, me and my wife, uh, Linda Wolf, put out a fanzine called BB Gun. Yeah. And we put out seven issues over the course of 10 years or something. And I'm holding the last issue in my hand now, which has a great photograph by Chris Buck of uh, Genesis Briar Peorage on the cover. Another sweetheart friend of mine who's uh, been a big influence. And, and yeah, so I have so many photographs that I took from my inside interviews with all these amazing musicians. I th You know, everyone's telling me, especially whenever I post any photo from the past on Facebook, everyone's like, when are you publishing a book? When are you publishing a book? And I, I really have to do it, so I'm going to do it. Oh, that's great. That's the plans. Yeah, that's <laughs> really awesome. And then, and then musically, what are you what are you up to? Musically, like I've been saying, I've been playing bongos with Mike mm -hmm. Edison yes. on occasion. Uh, and I didn't mean to slight that as if that wasn't. Yeah, yeah, important. yeah. I just want to make sure I got no, the whole story because you're always doing something. 
Yeah, no, lately it's been pretty pretty quiet. There is something happening that's a big secret that I can't talk about. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, I, I, like I, I said also about uh, thick, it's hard to say, thick, thick syrup. syrup records. Mm -hmm. right, the I first came in contact when they asked me to contribute a song for a compilation. So there's an uh, awesome compilation called LTD something. What's it called? 76 LTD. It? It's called 78 LTD. 78 LTD. Oh, my God. I realize that is a huge car. And uh, there's lots of great people on this comp. Steve Turner from Mudhoney, Julie Kafritz from Pussy Galore, Don mm -hmm. Fleming, Jad Fair, uh, the guy who plays drums for Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, Matt. Uh, and Matt Cameron. Oh, Matt Stephen Cameron. Edgerton of the Descendants. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty happening comp, and I did my version of uh, Kim Fowley's The Trip all by myself in my rehearsal space. There you go. And, uh, you know, I should check that out. So and do you only go to your rehearsal space to make noise, or do you make noise at home, too? I make noise at my rehearsal space. <laughs> Sometimes I make noise at home, I guess. But that's just usually just dropping pans on the floor or something. Right. <laughs> so the intended, so when you so when you feel something that you want to write or get out of your system, you're going to the rehearsal space then? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If I just want to, like, rock out on the drums or, or uh, just make some noise or just whatever, hang mm -hmm. out and listen to music, I mm -hmm. just go down there. I have a, a space in the uh, Leather Newman building, oh, right. factory building, which uh, hopefully lasts forever. It's the last part of Hoboken that hasn't been turned into a luxury condo building. So far. Yeah, so far. Well, you know, maybe Keep you just don't frozen. leave and you'll just have some, like, <laughs> some family, like, living around you, you know. Yeah. You, I'm coming in to drum now. Oh, that guy, he's just coming to drum, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, there's lots of people in that building. Sonic Youth has their recording studio in there, and Yola Tango's in there, and yeah, so, so yeah. Hopefully, it won't it won't go anyway away anytime soon. Yeah, so on Thick Syrup Records, it the compilation is 78 LTD, and then when uh, is the Chrome Cranks record coming out? January. Oh, good. Yeah, a few months, Perfect. and um, it's good, and it sounds great, and we're gonna hear a track for right now for the first time ever. Ever. I had asked permission to do this. Yeah. Awesome. And I just want to thank you for coming today. Oh, you know, it's my been pleasure. Awesome, and it's been my pleasure. really an honor to have you here. And I just really, you know, it's like you're such a music fan. Like it's it's just you know well I mean some people I prefer groupie. Okay, <laughs> okay, we'll go with groupie then. But it's you know it's really apparent how vital music has been to you f you know forever. Yeah. And uh, and that's great because like your your angle and, and what you presented here is is killer and just yeah. and thank you for being a part of music that a lot of people have grown up to and have taken as influence themselves. Right. And thanks you FMU know. for being the best radio station on the planet. I'm just very fortunate being brought up where I was in this area and in the time period everything oh my god and your recollections are amazing <laughs> oh, like oh my god what great stories so we're going to go out and once again thank you bob burt has been my guest and uh, this is black garage door on uh, an upcoming chrome cranks the name of the album is ain't no lies in blood all right then folks please stay tuned we're wfmu And that wraps it up for today's podcast. 
Thank you to Lita Martinez for editing the podcast and to Liz Berg for all the other background work. We are WFMU.